0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by
1: Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. An idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com.
2: Welcome to this week's episode of Meat and Three. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson. In this week's episode, we have four stories exploring the language behind some commonplace and some unusual foods. We want to find out what's in a name, so we're diving into milk, cider, ramen, and tiki cocktails. We've got debates between lawyers, interviews with historians, and chats with our favorite bartenders. We're on a mission to discover what lies behind our food words. First up, Aaliyah Papes asks the question, should plant-based beverages be called milk? When
3: we decided to do an episode about names, I set off to find out whether plant-based beverages can be or should be called milk. I thought it would be a pretty clear-cut conversation. People who support dairy want to protect the name milk, and people who don't support dairy want plant-based alternatives to succeed it turned out to be much more complicated.
4: So yes, you're right. The only federal definition we have of milk is the definition of cow's milk.
3: This is Mathilde Cohen, professor at Yukon School of Law. She studies food law, including milk regulation. Some foods, like milk, are standardized. That means the FDA determines its definition using what's called a standard of identity
4: the federal code of regulations says that milk is the last secretion obtained by the complete milking of one or more healthy cows. So there's no mention of goats, of donkeys or any other mammals, no mention of humans, and no mention of plant milk.
3: And yet many drinks made from soy, hemp, oats, and other plants are still labeled as milk, frustrating many in the dairy industry. Last year, a lawsuit was filed against Blue Diamond growers, arguing that calling their product almond milk was misleading.
4: And so the the question, a big concern for food regulators is, are you going to mislead consumers if you call product X uh, using word Y? It really depends on the cultural context and the history of a food. I don't think any American would be misled into thinking that peanut butter is dairy butter. But it could be that in other contexts for other products, they are misled. I would be curious to see empirical studies on it.
3: The suit was settled in September in favor of the almond milk producers. Also in September, the FDA opened a request for public comments on the use of dairy terms and the labeling of plant-based products. They received 14,016 comments. To put that in perspective, the FDA's other requests for comments about food during that same time received less than a 1,000 comments
4: combined.
3: So what is it about milk that makes its name so important to people?
4: I think a common thread, at least for animal and human milk, is the idea that it's a pure, clean, nourishing, caring substance. Because milk is a product of a relationship. It, It is One of the few food products that is produced by a living creature for another living creature. And so in our human culture, of course, it's it's the symbol of selfless devotion. Literally one person dissolves their body for the benefit of the nourishment of another person.
3: Like most foods, milk is never just milk. It's shaped by the culture and history it exists in. Mathilde herself is neutral about whether or not plant-based drinks should be called milks. She says lawsuits against non-dairy products are not a new phenomenon, though.
4: So the milk wars and butter wars are very old. They're, they date back to the 19th century. Initially, you had the so-called butter wars because margarine was cheaper than butter. So it was considered unfair competition. So there were lawsuits opposing, on the one hand, dairy farmers or the dairy groups and margarine groups.
3: In those cases, state and federal governments usually sided with the dairy
4: farmers. There were so-called pink laws, for example, state laws that would require margarine producers to dye their margarine off-putting colors, such as pink, so that consumers would no longer buy them. Then in the, the 1920s, the federal government did pass an act that, in effect, wanted to ban so-called filled milk. Filled milk was dairy
3: milk that had been cut with coconut fat.
4: And, that, and, and there was also a whole racial ideology behind that. The
3: 1923 Filled Milk Act was authored by Wisconsin Representative Edward Voigt, who explicitly used the idea of white supremacy to justify the law. He argued on the floor of the House that, quote, the superiority of the white race is due to at least some extent to the fact that it is a milk-consuming race. And along with other speakers, he made comments about the inferiority of people in other countries who supposedly depended on coconut milk. And as recently as last November, the New York Times reported on white supremacist groups championing milk as a symbol of whiteness. Like I said before, milk never seems to just be milk.
4: So in in this country, in particular, cow's milk has very early on in the history of the country become the normative milk. Berry farmers are part of, are considered now part of the American pastoral, the American ethos, the American landscape. And the U.S. government, through its laws, has furthered their power by, you know, subsidizing them, passing laws that protect them, and, and by also supporting official food and nutrition guidelines that counsel the consumption of milk.
3: Many dairy farmers now are struggling to make a living and are frustrated that the FDA allows non-dairy drinks to be labeled as milk.
5: It's so ingrained for us to think of milk as milk from a lactating animal. And it's our very identity. It's everything that we've lived for. Some of these multi-generational and even first-generation farms will fight like hell for their land and for their cows.
3: This is Lorraine Lewandrowski, a dairy farmer and attorney in Herkimer, New York.
5: Our family originated in Poland and Central Asia. Um, You know, my family survived on uh, cheese and yogurt um, when they were sent to Siberia and then went to live in Kazakhstan for a while. Dairy products were what you needed to survive. So we always thought of milk as being a very, you know, a flexible food, something that was good for you, especially whole milk or good cheeses.
3: For Lorraine, rising interest in plant-based beverages is influenced by the fickle tastes of urbanites which impact everyday life in rural communities.
5: You know, then I've been, I've been in urban settings where people tell me that, oh, anything is milk doesn't make any difference. You, you know, silly rural people are trying to hang on to the past or like, who the hell are you to tell me what, what my what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it.
3: Dairy farmers today are competing with more than just soy and almonds and the companies that promote them.
5: We see some of the, like the larger farmer, smaller farmer dynamic going on. For example, we have a regional processor here called Burn Dairy um, based out of Syracuse. And they have, for, for many decades, been very involved with the community. Then we have other ones who I'm sure they would dump you in a heartbeat. You know, like say Massive Dean Foods controls a huge portion of the bottled milk in the United States. And some of them have diversified into plant milks. It's, you know, whatever they think could sell.
3: It's not clear from the data we have that dairy producers would necessarily reclaim more of the dairy market if the FDA became more specific about milk's definition. Lorraine really wants to see more in the U.S. of what she experienced in France.
5: I went to the French farm show in 2008, and um, I was amazed at how Parisians were very proud of the food regions of France. And I was at a restaurant one night, and I said, well, I'm a dairy farmer from the United States. I came here to look at um, the French cows. And um, the waiter stopped the whole restaurant and said, she is here from America to see our cows. The whole place clapped and cheered. <laughs> and we're like, yes, the French cows are the best in the world. You know, <laughs> I don't see that here if I'm in New York City. I, I would love to see the city, you know, more closely connected with with the milks of our region or of our northeast or of our country.
3: The FDA's comment period on dairy names closed at the end of January, and it remains to be seen what they'll do with the data. In the meantime, maybe we can worry less about whether our milk comes from cows, humans, or plants, and more about whether it's living up to its deeper meaning, whether it was made with care, and whether we are connected to the people who produce it.
2: Our next story from Hannah Forden explores the terminology we use to describe cider.
6: Language is integral to how we understand our sensory experiences. Just look at all the words we use to describe wine or even beer. But what about cider? A drink that fell out of the spotlight for most of the 20th century, but is currently enjoying a comeback on many drink lists. With its renewed popularity, cider is searching for its own mother tongue. Dry. Blend. Fermented. Yeast.
7: Hey, I'm Jordan Berry. I'm a producer here at HRN, and I do cider research on the language we use to talk about what we're drinking. My data set looks at 500 labels from around the country, and it's basically a frequency list of all the words that producers are using. Orchard, directly with sweet, and fresh.
6: The and the number one word by a landslide is dry. Which is confusing because how can a drink be dry? It's a liquid. I asked Jordan, what are we talking about when we talk about dryness?
7: So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth.
6: That dry, want-another-sip feeling on your palate actually comes from the presence of tannins.
7: Which is an astringent compound that's present in apples as well as in grapes. What tannins do is they actually make your mouth feel dry.
6: But whether a drink is dry rather than tannic actually refers to its sugar content. Is it sweet? How sweet is it? And how much sugar is left
7: in there? But that sensation has nothing to do with dryness and how we talk about it in these drinks and the problem with dry and cider specifically is that so far it's a totally unregulated word and it's both kind of improperly used and overused without any standardization
6: jen smith is the executive director of the new york cider association In partnership with researchers at Cornell University, Jen is developing a dryness scale that can be standardized and used industry-wide. She spoke about it on a recent episode of Beer Sessions Radio.
3: It's a zero to four from dry to sweet, and your particular cider falls where it falls in between, and it's dry, semi-dry, semi-sweet, sweet sweet are the hash marks. Interestingly, ours evolved from the international Riesling scale, right? So that's taking the mystification around whether Riesling is sweet or dry uh, and clarifying it for the consumer. It was introduced in the late 90s, and
6: ours is built from it in the sense that they use residual sugar and total acidity and they adjust for pH. Standardizing the language used to describe a wine's flavor and mouthfeel allowed the racing industry to more effectively communicate to consumers.
3: They saw unparalleled growth in their category in the years following the introduction of the scale. So there's sort of a universal
6: regard for it as an effective consumer communication tool. Knowledge, experience, and an adventurous palate are essential to getting the most out of what we eat and drink. But knowing how to name what qualities we enjoy allows consumers to take ownership of what we're sipping on. It makes
7: cider more approachable to have language that they can understand that isn't kind of something that's too stuck in the industry and too self-referential so that it's not approachable. And so it builds an expectation in the consumer and an understanding that will encourage them to
6: keep drinking cider. If you want to learn more about the New York Cider Association's work, Crack open a dry one and download episode 473 of Beer Sessions Radio. You can check out Jordan Berry's research at ciderlanguage.com.
2: More meet and three after this.
1: Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive Chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish.
2: Welcome back to Meet and 3. Our next story on the semantics of food traces the roots of the word ramen, using linguistics to learn more about Japanese
0: history. First, take your chopsticks and pull a small amount of noodles from your bowl, then slap down the noodles quickly and loudly. Once you've finished the noodles and drunk the broth from your bowl, you can close your eyes and enjoy this delicious concoction of meaty, oily soup. That's Akiko
8: Katayama, host of Japan Eats on HRN, explaining the proper way to eat ramen. While these rules are pretty straightforward, ramen is so much more than just a bowl of noodles.
9: So for me, ramen is a microcosm of this long and deep, important cultural relationship between Japan and China, but also a different way, I think, of thinking about modern Japanese history.
8: Meet Dr. Barack Kushner from the University of Cambridge. He's a professor of modern Japanese history who uses food to re-examine the past. Dr. Kushner is also an expert on all things ramen, so he's one of the best people to ask about how ramen got its name.
9: So the first thing we have to remember with the word ramen is that one historical episode, one geographic place does not define the rise of ramen or its arrival on Japanese shores. It happens, in a sense, simultaneously all over the country in different areas. Different regional cuisines give birth to slightly different sorts of ramen-esque noodle dishes pretty much from the beginning of the 20th century up until the 1950s.
8: So ramen, this new noodle soup, arrived from China. But before it became popular, a lot of the ingredients and tools had already reached Japan.
9: So you need the donburi, you need the deep bowl, you need chopsticks, you need a spoon, you need soy sauce, you need miso, you need pork, Well, all of these different food technologies come over from China, mainly, at different times in history.
8: At the start of the 20th century, there was a wave of Chinese immigration into Japan. So it isn't surprising that Chinese immigrants were amongst the first making ramen. They usually served it as a quick and affordable meal near industrial areas. But back then, the dish was called
9: something else. It's mostly known as Chinese noodles in the beginning. And in Japanese, this is shina soba. So shina is a slightly derogatory word uh, for Chinese, but it also is just a more common term for China, shina.
8: By tracing the linguistic roots of ramen, we gain insight into Japanese history, specifically its complicated relationship with China.
9: So at first, ramen was really called Chinese noodles. And that really sticks for quite a long time, uh, almost until after the war. According to some explanations, the KMT, or the government that eventually goes on to rule Taiwan, thats uh, certainly the, the Chinese government after World War II, asks the Japanese to stop using the term uh, Shina, Shina. Um, and certainly uh, shina soba uh, would have been a part of that
8: still there are other debates and theories as to how ramen got its name
9: there's another explanation that perhaps up in Hokkaido there was a store that called its ramen Ryumen after a willow tree that was blooming in front of a store one other explanation says that one chinese cook in the back of a restaurant used to say haula or it's already after he cooked a noodle dish and thus the l for many Japanese ears was a la, and then it was the the la noodles, or those noodles that have just been finished, kind of a play on two languages.
0: La noodles would have been ramen, the Japanese word for noodles. Since the Japanese language does not distinguish between pronunciation of L and R, a new dish was named.
9: Whatever the case may be, there's a lot of different explanations. But the important thing to remember is ramen isn't really known as ramen until instant ramen comes out in 1958, which perhaps is the moment that most popularizes how ramen becomes known within Japan and then also internationally as well. And then as ramen independent stores, the small restaurants explode around Japan after the 1970s, that becomes much more the name attached to it. And nowadays that's how we know it as well.
8: From its more humble beginnings, ramen opened Japan to new foods and technologies. Pork, for example, had generally been seen as unclean, but was now used all over the country. Today, we can find ramen all over the world, from fusion restaurants to college dorms, where it's being slurped up in hundreds, if not thousands, of different ways.
9: But, I mean, to, to get to the bigger question, yeah. I mean, for me, ramen is <laughs> ramen is the way we can re-look, perhaps, at the entire history of the Sino-Japanese relation. I mean, if there is no China, then in some ways there is no modern Japanese cuisine as we know it.
8: Food is truly our universal language, and the word ramen can teach us how a food and a nation can transition over time.
0: If you want to get more ramen goodness, visit HRN sponsor Corinne at the Manhattan store where they offer workshops to improve your Japanese cooking skills. You can also shop online to find all the tools you need to make ramen.
2: In our last story today, I peek into the fantasy world of tiki bars to understand the history behind the term. Originating in California in the 1930s, tiki bars combine tropical, nautical, and retro elements. But while it invokes vacation vibes and relaxation, the term tiki is more loaded than you might think. I enlisted a friend and tiki enthusiast to enlighten us on the ins and outs of this cocktail subculture. I am Neil. Neil Herzl.
10: I'm a annoying Californian who uh, is out to get tiki in New York.
2: So... Does tiki exist in New York? Why or why not?
10: I would say no as a greater whole. There's amazing tiki drinks here, but not bars.
2: A controversial statement, I know. And we'll get back to it, as Neil has four rules of tiki to share with us. But first, let's start with the drinks.
10: Uh, tiki drink, I mean, you kind of have your, your classics, your uh, zombie, Mai Tai, jet pilot... A lot of people would throw in, like, mojitos and pina colada and stuff, but those really aren't in the original canon or even in, like, the Golden Age.
2: Tiki's origins can be traced back to archetypal bars Don the Beachcomber, opened in Hollywood in 1933, and Trader Vic's, opened in Oakland in 1936.
10: So you kind of have two original Tiki palettes. Um, One would be the Don the Beachcomber palette, and the other would be the Trader Vic's. Don Beach is going to be almost all built off of original planter's punch recipe, which is a traditional Caribbean drink. One of bitter, two of sweet, three of strong, four of weak, five of spice to make it nice. It's just a punch. And then Don's was open for a few years. And then you have uh, Trader Vic. He owned a little bar in like East Bay. It was like Oakland area. He went on vacation to LA, went to Don's, and was, went there for a couple days and finally met Don was like, we got to franchise these. Like, this is incredible. At that time, people had already been ripping him off so much and stuff that he, he was like a, like a mean old man. <laughs> and he's just like, no, get out of here. And so Vic was like, okay, I'll just make this myself. So he goes up, he closes everything down at his bar. Two weeks later, it's full tropical paradise. So he kind of was the first like business to really franchise tiki out. And his drinks were much lighter. There were a lot of, he had other citrus in there like orange and lemon. Um, he's the famous for making the Mai Tai, uh, the most popular tiki drink ever.
2: So if New York has great tiki drinks, why not great tiki bars? Neil explains.
10: You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad and that's where it gets a bad name. But when done, like, really well, you can walk in, you can tell it's authentically unauthentic.
2: Without further ado, here are Neil's four rules of tiki that create a, quote, authentically unauthentic atmosphere. Rule number one.
10: You cannot have a tiki bar without tikis.
2: Tikis are carved wooden or stone statues found throughout Polynesia that symbolize the first man, deities, and or ancestors. They've now found their way into popular tiki cocktail culture. Obviously, this raises questions around cultural appropriation, but most tiki advocates view this use of imagery as kitschy cultural fantasy, not tied to any one specific island or culture. Rule number two.
10: No windows, Uh, because you're supposed to be escaping. You're You're not supposed to be able to look out and see the rest of the world.
2: Rule number three.
10: Exotic cocktails. Rule number four. No white walls. Thanks to our friend Bamboo Ben.
2: Bamboo Ben is a designer of more than 20 tiki bars. His generous use of thatched grasses, wood, and of course bamboo adds even more to the fantastic feeling of escape. Finally, I asked Neil if he thinks New York is due for a tiki renaissance.
10: It's so funny that New York, what I consider the best cocktail city in the world, has one and a half, one-ish, two-ish, quasi-tiki bars. Southern California, it's like half the new bars open are tiki bars.
2: If I'm being honest, I'm okay with the lack of tiki bars in New York. While I do enjoy my fair share of tropical beverages in the summer, you'll find me on Fort Tilden Beach, not inside a windowless bar. Well, that's our show. Special thanks this week to Aaliyah Papes and Pauline Munch for their reporting. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Katie mosman waddler and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Pauline Munch. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music includes Secret of Tiki Island by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.